Let us pray. Father, send us your spirit and teach us your truth in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's a question to start you off this morning. In the Bible, you will come across various stories of people who are visited by an angel, a messenger from God. If you start reading the Bible from the beginning, who is the first person who receives a visitation from an angel of God? Well, I'll come back to that later. We're working our way through the stories of Genesis, thinking about what it means to be human in a God-shaped world. These are fascinating stories that go way back in history. They have been referred to as the Old Testament of the Old Testament. In other words, they were very old and ancient stories, even at the time that they were first being written and read. The stories of Abraham are set about 2000 years before the time of Jesus, just as Jesus lived about 2000 years before us. So just as the world of Jesus is ancient and strange in some ways to us, so the world of Abraham would have seemed ancient and strange even to Jesus and his contemporaries. Abraham is from a very, very long time ago, from a strange world with all sorts of different ideas about God and about how to live in the world than we have. I tend to think of these stories as legends. The precise origin, origin of them is lost in the mists of time. It's not clear exactly who Abraham was as an individual or how he lived. But these stories have real nuggets of truth in them about what it means to be human and about how God relates to us as people. So we need to distill out of them those nuggets. We need to leave behind the strangeness of the context and try and discern something that we can relate to today. So we shouldn't compare ourselves too directly with what's going on. We can't take what happens in these stories as direct models for how to live today because they're just too strange for that. But there are aspects of human life and relationships that we can compare with life today. Let's go to the detail of this particular bit of the story. It follows on from what Doug led us through last week. In last week's section, God made a promise to Abraham that he would have many descendants, even though he was very old. We were told that Abraham believed in the promise that God gave him. So now the story goes on in Genesis chapter 16. Time has passed. It says Abraham has been in the land of Canaan for 10 years. The promise has not yet been fulfilled. Abraham is childless. It's not clear how long Abraham has been waiting since the promise was made, but presumably it is in years, measured in years which is a long time to wait for the fulfilment of a promise. 
So we might speculate as to what is going on. Sarai, the wife of Abraham, um, is the one who seems to lose patience, as it were, who wants to take matters into her own hands. Perhaps she's wondering, where is this promise? What is God doing? Why is nothing happening? Do we need to take some initiative? Should we step in? Maybe it depends more on us doing something than we first realised. Now, Sarai herself seems to have given up hope of ever having a child. And so the initiative that she takes is to use her servant girl, um, who's a much younger woman, and say to her husband, Abraham, take my servant, Hagar, uh, an Egyptian slave girl, take her as if she's your wife and see if you can have children with her. Well, Abraham does that and Hagar conceives. Now, let's just pause there, because even that part of the story might seem strange and slightly troubling to us. Here's a young woman being treated just as property and being used purely as a means of reproduction. In the strange world of this, the time, it was possibly, um, probably, in fact, acceptable. However, things then do go wrong. And there is a strong hint that this was not a wise thing to have done. Because now there's rivalry within the household. There's competition between Sarai and Hagar. Sarai thinks that she's going to be lifted up, that she's going to grow in status if Hagar has a child, because Sarai will be able to treat her as her own child. But instead, the opposite happens. Sarai feels demeaned and looked upon with contempt. Perhaps because Hagar is like a wife now to Abraham, she feels as if she's on a level with Sarai. And more than that, because Hagar has conceived, she feels superior to Sarai. However, Sarai is still the one who has all the power. She cannot tolerate this situation. And so with Abraham condoning her, she treats Hagar harshly, so harshly that Hagar runs away. Now, again, let's just pause. And I want to note the power dynamics in what's going on here. Sarai has all the power and the privilege and she uses it for her own ends. Abraham, in theory, has even more power. In this patriarchal world, he has the final say for anything that happens within the family realm. And yet he steps back and condones the mistreatment of Hagar. And we cannot avoid the racial element in what's going on here. We're consistently told that Hagar is Egyptian. So she's a foreigner as far as Abraham and Hagar are concerned. She's different. She's not one of them. And perhaps, therefore, they feel um, it's more acceptable to mistreat her. They look down on her and they treat her differently in a way they would not treat their own kin. So Abraham and Sarai may be the ancestors of God's people and they may be the ones to whom God made the extraordinary promises. But in this story, they are not good role models. They are abusing 
their status and they are abusing their power. They are beset seemingly by doubts, by jealousies, by rivalries, and they misuse their position in order to try and further their own ends. What has happened to the promise of God? Where is God when all this is going on? Seemingly, God is absent or at least inactive in the way the story is narrated. God seems to be standing back and presumably watching the story unfold. When Hagar runs away, she's met by someone who is sent by God, um, a messenger or an angel. And he asks her what is going on. She explains that she is running away from her mistress, Sarai. To which the angel tells her to go back and to be an obedient servant, but also gives her, gives Hagar a promise that she herself will become an ancestor of many people. The angel then reassures her that God has heard, God has paid heed to her distress. And this is to be recognised in naming the son that she will bear, Ishmael, which means God hears. Again, pause to reflect on this part of the story. It is very troubling that she is sent back to submit. Seemingly, she is expected by God to undergo further harsh treatment, or at the very least, the humiliation of having to return to those from whom she ran away. And there is no explanation of why God required that. There is an element of mystery here, uh, and we certainly should not ever take it as an example to be followed. It was wrong for Sarai to mistreat Hagar. And I'm confident that the narrator of the story expects us to have that perspective. Um, if we want to be sure about that, we can refer elsewhere in the Bible. We can look in Exodus in the Old Testament or Ephesians in the New Testament for very clear teaching that even in societies that took slavery for granted, God commanded that slaves be treated well and fairly and looked after. But part of the strangeness of this particular story is that Hagar is sent back. The more important thing is that Hagar receives the promise from God. And in response, she recognises that God has seen her. She says to God, you are El Roi, the God who sees me. And the well where this incident happens, where the angel meets her, she then names Be'er Lachai Roi, which means the well of the living one who sees me. So the whole incident is created to communicate to us that God sees all that goes on and that God does respond to that, having heard the distress of those in trouble in God's own time. 
That's the story that we've read uh, already this morning from Genesis chapter 16. Um, as we continue working our way through Genesis, Hagar will pop up again in Genesis chapter 21, but that's not going to be part of our sermon series. So I'll just mention it very briefly now so that we've got the whole picture of the story of Hagar. Um, eventually, because of ongoing rivalries within the family, um, after both Hagar and Sarai eventually have both had a son, um, Hagar and her son Ishmael are banished. They're sent away. But when that happens, the same dynamic recurs. They're in the wilderness and they're desolate and desperate. And again, God who sees them, God who has heard their distress, reaches out to them and meets them through an angel and provides for what they need. So God does not allow Hagar to remain as a victim. God reaches out and helps Hagar, the foreigner, the one who doesn't fit in. He, God helps her with whatever befalls her, even though she is so mistreated, even though she's the foreigner, even though she is a slave. God sees and God hears and God acts for her well-being. Well, that rounds out the story of Hagar. It's good to recognise that the same themes occur in Genesis 21 as here in Genesis 16. Um, we're reading this story today with our three questions in mind. What does it mean to be human in a God-shaped world? What does this story tell us about God and about the world that God intends for us? And how do we relate to this as we are following Jesus day to day? Well, the human characters in this story are God's chosen ones. And yet they are engaged in domestic strife, misuse of power, harsh treatment of others. And as we have seen, the abuse has a racial aspect to it. This is very shocking and it is also deeply realistic. As God's people, we are not immune to doing wrong. We are not immune to misusing our privilege or misusing our power. The Church of England has recently issued a report called From Lament to Action that catalogues widespread evidence of racial discrimination within the life of the church historically. So we should never be so naive as to think that cannot happen here. Speaking about racial issues, I'm very mindful as I say this, that I personally represent the dominant ethnic group in the UK. Um, the group from which have come historically the main perpetrators of the misuse of power and of racial discrimination. And so the message that I'm grappling with personally is to what extent have I ever been complicit in that? How have I ever made any kind of assumptions which prioritise my own interests or my own point of view over and against other people's? And this story prompts us, as God's people, 
to ask ourselves, how have we ever made decisions which are based around serving our own ends? It opens us up to the idea that whether deliberately or unwittingly, we might have been oppressing or mistreating others. That is the first thing we need to recognise from this story. Part of being human, even when we are God's people, is the possibility of doing harm and mistreating others. In the story, God made a promise to Abraham, which he believed at the time. But later in this story, we see him taking action at the expense of other people to try to make the promise come about. So we can take a lesson from Abraham, uh, perhaps from his mistake, and take care to go on believing in God and putting our trust in God, even when situations look bleak. Believing in God's promises means acting as if they are going to come about. And that involves treating other people rightly, even when there's no sign of the promises coming about. Now, I'm reminded here particularly um, of the story of Cain and Abel that Steve opened up to us a few weeks ago. Um, if you remember, Cain felt hurt when God did not accept his offering. And it was that which led to him murdering his brother Abel. So we are warned to guard our hearts and our attitudes. When we feel let down by God, um, or neglected by God, or perhaps by other people who represent God, like the church. Those are the times when, to use the phrase from Cain and Abel, sin is crouching at our door. Abraham, uh, Abraham, sorry, capitulated and tried to take matters into his own hands. Let's not do the same. Let's not allow our distress, our despair, our discomfort lead us into acts of darkness. And where was God in this particular story? What was God doing when all that harsh treatment of Hagar was going on? As I've said, God seemed to be standing back and not getting involved. But when Hagar had run away, then God met her because God had seen all that had happened and God had heard and paid heed to her distress. Hagar knew this and it was fundamental to her perspective. And she obediently called her son when he was born Ishmael, meaning God hears, God pays heed. Now, you might have guessed by now the answer to my opening question. The very first person in the Bible, if you read it from the beginning, to be visited by an angel is Hagar, the mistreated foreigner slave. And note a very particular detail in the account here. As the angel meets Hagar, the angel addresses her by name and he is the first person to do so. 
Abraham and Sarai do not address her by name. They simply talk about her. They refer to her as a slave girl, as an Egyptian. The angel also acknowledges that Hagar is a slave, but he does not address her in that way. The angel who speaks for God addresses Hagar by name. So he takes an interest in her personally. In this way, God comes into the story at the crucial moment and treats Hagar with dignity and with compassion. She is the one who's been abused and mistreated and the victim of domestic strife. And God reaches out to her and gives her hope and gives her a promise of her own. That is where God is in this story. God has not forgotten the promise to Abraham. That will still be fulfilled. But for the time being, things have gone wrong because Abraham and Sarai have tried to take things into their own hands. And God is not just going to look on that passively. God will not be the one who lets things go wrong and leave victims helpless. God reaches out to the victim and gives her dignity and compassion and a promise. We're still left with some awkward questions. Why didn't God act sooner? Um, why does Hagar get sent back? There are aspects here which are inscrutable about God's action. And the story doesn't offer us any answers to those particular questions. But what gives us hope in God's action is the fact that at the crucial moment, God does send the messenger to help the victim of abuse. Well, where does that leave us as followers of Jesus today? We are part of God's people and we are recipients of the promises of God, forgiveness, eternal life in Jesus Christ. That does not mean that we will never do wrong, nor that we will never have doubts or insecurities. When we do have, those are the moments when our faith may be tested. Sin may be crouching at our door and we must master it. We need to be honest and realistic about our condition as human people, even as redeemed human people. Still, we need to acknowledge that we might have done harm to others in the past, that we have the propensity to do harm to others in the future, and therefore positively seek to avoid that. Reading of Hagar's suffering at the hands of her own household, we acknowledge that domestic abuse and domestic violence are realities still in the world today. They can occur within church families just as much as anywhere. For anyone affected by them, we can take comfort and hope from knowing that God sees and God hears 
and God pays heed to what happens. And God's approach to us will always be with compassion and dignity. God knows us. God knows all that has befallen us. And God addresses us by name. One of the most insidious aspects of domestic abuse is the blaming of the victim. And there's even a slight sense of that in this Bible story, which is written mainly from Abram and Sarai's perspective. Hagar's suffering is blamed on Sarai feeling looked down on by Hagar, as if it was the attitude of Hagar that started all of this off. And we need to be absolutely clear Abuse is never right, and the victim is never to blame. God knows and God sees. So if we are aware of anyone who is suffering in an abusive relationship, it is right to, to name it, to do what we can to help, and to treat all of the people concerned with compassion and dignity. Now, I recognise this is really challenging and sobering stuff to work with today. Um, it's not pleasant stuff to have to recognise, but it is a reality of the world we live in, uh, as attested here in the Bible story. We know that even God's people can cause harm to others, we know that God knows and God sees all that goes on and God reaches out with dignity and compassion to all who are mistreated by others. And that includes all those who are racially discriminated against, all those who are abused and all those who are blamed for their own suffering. We are called as the people of Christ to protect the vulnerable, to work for justice, and to put right relationships which are broken. Do make contact with any of the clergy or the pastoral team at church if these matters affect you personally. I'd like to end on some really great upbeat notes, but I'm afraid today's story doesn't allow us that uh, opportunity. Instead, I'll take the themes that which we've discussed and offer them to God in prayer. Let's pray. God of mercy and of grace, who sees and who hears all that happens whether in public or in private. We confess to you our tendency to prioritise our own interests and sometimes to ride roughshod over others in the way we make decisions. Lord, have mercy upon us. Lord, help us to recognise that and to turn aside from it. 
God of grace, some of us have been mistreated by others, whether in the domestic sphere or elsewhere. Some of us have been abused and some of us may have been racially discriminated against. Thank you that you know that you have seen and you pay heed to our affliction. Reach out to us, we pray. Give us your comfort and your help. Show us what we should do for the best and give us confidence to name what is happening and to seek help from others. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.